Hello, my guest today on the Word of Good podcast is Polly McKenzie, Chief Executive of Demos, a cross-party think tank. Demos is a champion of people, ideas and democracy. They bring people together and bridge divides. Demos are passionate about ideas and innovation and they believe working across party lines is the way to get things done. And they know we don't have to be in government to make a change, so they also work with social and community leaders, businesses and campaigners to renew Britain. Polly McKenzie started her career as a business journalist. In 2004, she became a policy advisor on housing and local government for Edward Davy MP. She then worked for Nick Clegg from 2006 to 2015, helping to write the 2010 coalition agreement and serving as director of policy to the deputy prime minister from 2010 to 2015. After leaving government, Polly established the operations of the Women's Equality Party and then went on to found the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, a charity working to break the link between financial difficulty and mental health problems. Listeners may recognise Polly from her numerous TV appearances, including Question Time, Sky News, Politics Live and Good Morning Britain. I'm incredibly excited to welcome Polly McKenzie. Hello, Polly. How are you today? I am very well. You have been at all the party political conferences this week, so uh, I'm sure you have all the answers to Brexit in your back pocket now. Um, I think I, I've come back with fewer answers than yeah. I had when I left. But yeah, three solid weeks of party politics is enough to make you need a holiday, really. And <laughs> definitely settle them zips. Absolutely. Um, so we'll go straight. We'll get straight into it. So um, your mission at Demos states that at a crossroads in Britain's history, we need ideas for renewal, reconnection, and the restoration of hope. And you recently started to focus on financial well-being of the nation. In the face of austerity, rising debt, and stagnated savings, how big a problem do, do Demos think that poor financial well-being is in this country? I think it's incredibly important. Um, there's that sense of. Uh, dissatisfaction and alienation and frustration with politics and I think so much of it stems from you know a sense that people have to struggle with day-to-day living in a way that they they shouldn't have to we've got used I think to rising prosperity to the sense that every generation would do better than the one that came before and now we see particularly with rising housing costs and uh falling welfare payments, stagnant wages. It just feels like it's harder than it should be. And that that kind of uh, road towards progress is broken somehow. And I think if you can't get money into people's pockets and make everyday life a bit easier, then frankly, you know, nobody in politics has any chance of, of bringing the country back together. Which is quite interesting, isn't it? Because if you look at things like the paradox of thrift, you know, the idea that People need to be spending money. Um, they, the economy obviously survives on the fact that people are comfortable and spending money. And uh, so, so why why do you think the government isn't doing as much as it probably should be doing? Um, recently, I was at an event with Ben Broadbent, who was talking the deputy governor for monetary policy at the Bank of England, who was talking about um, you know it is one of society's biggest problems, um, but clearly that seems to be falling on deaf ears um, in Parliament. Yeah, I think 
we started to develop a story that suggested that all spending on benefits or on kind of top-ups to people's wages was kind of wasted. And, and also a, a real narrative against things like housing benefit that make rent affordable for so many people. Um, instead of recognizing that there's a sort of economic payback from there being money in people's pockets that enables them to, to spend it in the real economy and also to live decent lives. Um, you know, we often talk about kids who've got no space to do their homework. You know, you can't have a socially mobile society where kids can fulfill their potential if they haven't got space and time to kind of do their schoolwork. And, and those, I guess, our politicians stopped um, focusing on that story uh, of how, how important it is to get money into people's pockets uh, because, you know, like it or not, there was this huge financial crash and suddenly the government was spending uh, 12% more than it was getting in in tax. You know, that coalition government put up tax a bit, uh, but focused almost exclusively through the rest of it on, on, on cutting spending. And I guess it just felt easiest for the Conservatives in particular to to cut that money from from the welfare budget. But of course, financial inclusion is not just about handouts and cash. Actually, it's essential people having purchase agency in the economy, feeling like they can get a good deal from consumer services. They're not being kind of ripped off or exploited. And we know that so often it's poorer people, more vulnerable people who do end up paying more for stuff that others kind of shop around for and get and get much cheaper and and that i think creates a sense of injustice uh, that that politicians just haven't connected with you hear loads and loads of politicians talking about changes in our labor market and that's important you know the gig economy but it's still a tiny percentage of the number of people only half of people about are working right at any one time because you've got pensioners and kids and sick people and mums and Everybody's a consumer. If you actually want to build a sense of agency and power for people in that economy, you've got to talk about consumer inclusion and not just about employment policy, I think. And do you think, you know, translating that to kind of workplace financial well-being, um, you know, you've had mm. pretty pretty well-known people in government, people like Matt Hancock saying that employers need to be doing more about the well-being of their staff. Um, and you know the Department of Work and Pensions report on health being everyone's business. You know, it it feels a little bit to me like we are heading towards legislation territory around workplace well-being. Um, would you would you agree with that? Is that kind of what you're seeing? I think it's certainly possible we might get to legislation. You know, you had the the Farmer Stevenson review on on workplace well-being, which talked talked about a much more kind of a I was going to say aggressive, it's probably not the right word, um, ambitious approach for employers. I, I think those of us who care about this need to uh, focus first and foremost, though, on the value to employers of caring about your staff's well-being. Because if this is just motherhood and apple pie and let's all be nice to each other, then loads of good people will say yes, but I think we can get further than that. It is crazy if you have staff who are losing sleep because of their bills or their debts, and you as an employer can help and you're not doing it because your staff are not going to be as good in their day job. You know, little things like um, uh, uh, payday, payday loans, payday advances, as it were, rather than having a member of staff go to Wonga um, or be, you know, sometimes 
you know, when you, if you're getting calls from bailiffs and debt collectors, you know, uh, I've heard case studies of people being called down 16, 20 times a day. You know, you can't concentrate on your work if that's happening to you. And as an employer, we know that, I, I, you know, I employ about 20 people. I can, I don't pay them very much. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of the first, first, second jobbers, lots of them. But what I can do is I can offer them a season ticket loan and I can buy a bicycle for them and I can make sure that if they need help with a bill that I'm, I'm there to help them. And, you know, if you're employing 1,000 people, 10,000 people, you can have a transformative effect on people's lives and also their loyalty to you as an employer and their performance at work. It seems to me just sort of basic business to start thinking about that stuff. Um, I think, yeah, there's, there's that old quote, isn't there, about nobody comes up with a great idea when they're being chased by a lion. I think, you know, <laughs> financial well-being uh, is kind I've of... I've not heard that before, but yes, exactly that. But it's the idea that... Chased by a yeah, the idea that this pressure is just so much too much for people you know a lot huge amounts of research now point to the fact that money is more stressful to people than work or relationships um and i think yeah. you touched upon a, a really interesting point there around um you, you almost need to create a culture in the workplace that people can come to you and ask for help so that if somebody does yeah. need a loan for example whether it's a season ticket or otherwise that they don't feel ashamed to approach their employer to ask for that kind of help yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, when I, in my um, second job, I think I had a colleague who, uh, in the days of checks, revealing how ancient I am, really, who every month he would run out of money just before paydays. So he would go um, to the post office and cash a check to himself. Uh, and it took, at that time, three days to process it. So he's basically giving himself a payday loan via the slowness of the bank clearing system. Um, and you just think... That he was always three days out of step with his pay cycle, and all he had a kind of clever solution to it. But you know, you just think if I was his employer, you could sort that out with you know one little tweak of shifting either the day they get paid or one a one off loan to shift that person, and 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 he wouldn't have been anywhere near as stressed every month. Um, if there's that losing sleep thing is so crucial. You know, so if you lose uh, a night's sleep, it's equivalent to going from being uh, the the 75th cleverest person out of 100 to being the 50th cleverest person out of 100. That's like a standard deviation. That's how big the shift is in your performance if you've lost sleep. And, you know, to not care about that as an employer is just self-defeating, I think. I think it's uh, one of the interesting points you raised there as well is I think people approaching their employer for help um i think a lots of this stuff is really you know i did a talk this week where lots of questions people were asking the audience were about you know is this really a big problem sure people are struggling with money but you know people people nobody's going to kill themselves because they owe 200 pounds um and i obviously told them the story of jerome rogers who was the subject yes. of the bbc documentary killed by my debt who you know although he was technically self-employed because he was a city sprint rider you know, ultimately, uh, a very small debt of about £130 ballooned to about two grand, And it was the pressure he felt from bailiffs and the people chasing that debt that ultimately ended him to, you know, with less than a year to take his life. And it's just, I think people forget that it can be so overwhelming and all-encompassing when you're in that situation. Absolutely. And that's the thing with um, when, it, when it starts to become a mental health problem is actually that something that might 
I guess, technically be small stops being small because the way your mind is processing things, you, this word I, I learned when I was working in mental health, you catastrophize. Um, and, you know, some of the letters that people get from, from bailiffs and debt collectors really exacerbate that. They make it feel like, God, the world's going to come to an end if I can't rustle up this 150 quid. They make you feel bad and guilty. And we've got to tackle that stigma. Um, I don't think anybody should be ashamed of, you know, not quite having enough money to make ends meet. You know, and sometimes that might be because of a good thing, as it was sort of a virtuous thing, or you because your freezer broke, or um, the car needed repairs or something. But it might also because, you know, yeah, you just overspent this month. Everybody does it. It happens. And it, we shouldn't start making moral judgments about people. Those people I've spoken to kind of like, oh, I don't want my employer to know that I'm a bit rubbish at managing money. Maybe your employer might want to help. Uh, you know, I, there's this assumption that you can't, I, I don't know, I was recently, one of our clients insisted that we do a credit check on uh, some of the employees that were working on their, their project. And that really upset me. I mean, sort of had to do it because otherwise I, you know, couldn't sign the contract. But, but I don't want to know about the credit history of my employees. I want to be there to help them, but I don't want to be snooping on whether they are, um, you know, whether they've paid this debt or that debt because it feels so personal and so intrusive. Mm, yeah, I think it's. I worked at Legal and Journal for five years, and we had the same situation. It was the the money laundering view was if you or in a position of debt, you are more likely to be persuaded by some gang who is trying to get hold of customer data. Um, and I think it's obviously some, somebody's, yeah, sure. somebody's level of trust yeah. and how much they owe are, are completely not linked together in any way, I can't imagine. Yeah, and you know, but maybe uh, if somebody is yeah in so much debt that they're subject, that, you know, and they're trying to work as a spy or something or controlling millions and millions of pounds of client funds, Sure, but I just I think what we must resist is the idea that it happens a lot more in the US that every employer should sort of credit check all of their staff and be spying on them. You know, we just need to I don't know stop making moral judgments about each other. I think. Excellent, thank you. Um, one of the other documents I wanted to talk to you about that demos have uh, published recently is uh, the Good Credit Index. Um, What's been said online is a groundbreaking report that for the first time ever mapped the UK's credit environment. Um, and demos found that you called um, 29 credit deserts where people struggle to access affordable credit despite a clear need for it. Can you tell us a little bit about the report and what you found out? Well, so uh, we started doing this piece of work because we, um, we wanted to encourage local leaders to... Uh, to put financial inclusion kind of at the top of, of their agenda. It's something that um, we read about the mayor of Boston in Massachusetts doing, really trying to drive credit inclusion and access to finance in, in Boston. And, and we noticed that there aren't really any mayors or local authority leaders who say that that's a, a vital thing and we think that's wrong. So we want to do this kind of place-based analysis looking at all the different cities, all the local authorities, and compare people's experiences of getting credit in those places and we looked at a range of different indicators stuff that's to do with people and stuff to do with place so on the people side things like people's income the amount of debt they're in the amount of ccjs in that local authority um chemical judgments against people and then on the place-based side we looked at how much advice is funded in this area 
how many uh, payday lenders are there on the high street? Um, how many pawnbrokers uh, can you get access to cash? Because the thing is, um, we believe that people's choices are massively shaped by what's around them. You know, it's just same with food, right? Um, you know, if you walk down your local high street and there's 12 fish and chip shops or, or chicken shops and hardly anywhere to get vegetables because, you know, the, the corner shop doesn't sell them anymore. You know, what are you going to eat for dinner? You're going to eat a lot more chicken and chips than somebody who lives uh, right next to a market full of vegetables. Um and I think the same is true with credit. So we did some focus groups, talked to people about that. They said, absolutely, you know, that being on a high street full of pawnbrokers and payday lenders just normalizes that that's how you're going to get money when you're in trouble, especially when there's nowhere else to turn. There's no citizen's advice. There's no ordinary high street bank that you can go to to apply for a loan. Nobody else you can talk to except these really nice people at the payday lender. Um, and so, so we kind of put all that debt that information together and basically what we we found is we think the worst places are these what we call credit deserts which are places where demand for credit is really high but the access to good kinds of credit you know stuff that that's at an affordable rate but they'll be decent to people with kind of vulnerabilities or, or health problems is really low so if you strong need low provision we think those are the places which kind of should be right at the heart of any government strategy and our message to those local government leaders in those places was you've got a serious problem here people's lives are being hurt by the lack of financial products and financial services if you if, if you invest in whether it's credit unions or um employer-based financial well-being then we believe that you can have a transformative impact on the lives of the people in your place and we're doing this big project in sheffield city region which is actually launching um, this month to try and work out in a place what can you do what's the what's the best practice you can deliver how can you get employers to change their practice housing associations to change their practice how can you shape the high street and then what can consumers do so we're working on that over the course of, over the course of a year before we launch, the, I guess, the next, the 2020 credit index that looks at how many of these credit deserts have, uh, have kind of got worse, which ones have got better. Just try and encourage a real set of leadership from people at local government level that this is something they can fix. It's really interesting. We talk a lot in kind of employee experience about kind of personalization of the, the employee experience and personalization of well-being. And I think we got ourselves to a point um, with employers that treating everybody the same seemed like the fair thing to do when obviously it's not the same because we've all got different challenges. And I think that's a really good example yeah. of where employers that have multi-sites and have employees all over the country could start to tailor their well-being strategies to the issues that people are facing in certain regions. Um, and as you mentioned before, you know, giving people in the worst regions access to hardship loans that are kind of uh, interest-free to the employer, which still loads of employers offer, but they don't really talk about it. Yeah, so it's interesting. In the Northeast, for example, people use and get into trouble with um, kind of rent-to-own uh, type products, you know, where you... You, you pay in installments for like white, white goods. Sure. And we know that that is more of a problem in the Northeast than any other region. I'm not sure why, but we, the, the data is pretty clear about that. So, you know, if you're an employer in that area, well, maybe you might want to think about how do you help your employees with access to white goods, you know, or repair 
those kinds of issues, which might not be relevant in uh, the Southwest, for example, where those kind of those shops just don't have anywhere near as much of a presence. I mean, there's so many different things you can do as an employer from kind of education and advice, loan provision to actually more kind of creative and imaginative things like, you know, uh, yeah, helping people to share and reuse products that they that they might need interesting um yeah very interesting um in another one of your reports you talk about it's called uh, pathways from poverty the future of the dwp mm-hmm. um, and you talk about the low levels of trust people have in that government department in particular i'm sure in government in general it's not very high at the moment um and also mm-hmm. knowing that trust in financial services is always at a record low um we talk about how important trust is to well-being in general between the employee and the employer but how important do you think trust is in the institutions that help us with our money? I I think it's really important, but we shouldn't we shouldn't panic because you know you hear a lot in the media as as if everybody used to trust every institution and now nobody trusts anything, and that's it's not really clear that that's true. Actually, people didn't really trust banks before and. Uh, it hasn't collapsed. It's probably just kind of bumped along. Same with politicians. They actually, you know, nobody really likes politicians. There are institutions that people trust, you know, up to a point, the BBC or the NHS. And, and I think it's partly because those things produce things that people like, you know, like hospitals and uh, comedy shows. Um, but uh, it, it is important to develop as much as you can a relationship to trust with your customers. Um, whether you're the government or or a bank, because people won't tell you the truth if they don't trust you. You know, I'm, I've had so many conversations with you know banks who uh, who just wish somebody would tell them you know six months, twelve months earlier that they'd lost their job and they were getting into trouble with their mortgage, because then they could have been helped. Um, but instead of just bemoaning what's wrong with people, why don't they just tell us the truth? Like. I think you have to invest some time and understanding as to why people don't ask for help. And it's because they're really frightened. Uh, and, you know, lots of financial services companies have done bad things which have earned them a reputation by, you know, trying to foreclose on people uh, or trying to, um, or, or kind of making them feel stigmatized because they admitted to losing their job or having a health condition. And I know loads of kind of vulnerable customer type teams are working to challenge that within 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 banks and financial institutions. But it's it's an ongoing battle, right? It's it's never going to be won. It's always going to be awkward and difficult when somebody who's got control of your money, whether that's your employer or your bank, you know, has the opportunity to treat you badly. People are going to be frightened. So it's an ongoing job of work to build trust. Excellent. Well, I would like to talk to you about this kind of stuff for hours and hours on end, but I'm not entirely sure you would. Me too. I know you've got a busy week this week, so I'm going to ask you one final question before I let you go. Um, I've been asking all the guests on this podcast how they look after their own well-being and how they best manage their own well-being. Um, how do you think you manage to do that? Uh, so exercise is so important for me. Um, and uh, I'm, you know... I, I, I'm not perfect, but I try and I cycle or I walk to work every day. 
try and go to the gym quite regularly. And I, you know, I know I have like a couple of weeks where for whatever, I'm just too busy or ill or something. And honestly, I just, I find that if I'm not getting air into my lungs and, uh, you know, really getting proper exercise, I just, I just, I can't, I can't get through the day really. Don't sleep well. So that's the key thing to me. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Polly McKenzie. Join the workplace wellbeing discussion online by tweeting your thoughts and questions to at World of Good Book. Thank you to my guest today, and thank you for listening. <laughs>